The following podcast is recommended for people 18 and over as it discusses the production and consumption of alcohol. A podcast one production. Cheers. Look, I've asked you guys here because you represent both the ways the next generation of craft distillers are getting started. Ali, yourself and your husband Nick started Karu from scratch. And Josh, you and your wife Caitlin took over the Timboon Distillery from its previous owners. I'm really interested to learn how you guys learned distilling when you didn't have a family history in it and what it's been like to try to break into the industry. Let's start with you guys, Ali, Nick. What made you decide to start Karu Distillery? Um, I love alcohol. (laughs) Who doesn't? So um, Nick and I were sitting in our back room at our house a couple of years ago and we were having just like a whiskey and we're just like, this is really cool. What if you were to actually make this? What does it entail? So then we started traveling Australia and just like learning whatever we could from whoever we could and who was generous enough to lend us their information. (laughs) I guess that's as good a reason as any to start. So, where was the first stop on your travels? A um, distillery course down in a whiskey distillery down in Tasmania. So, Ali and I headed down there to spend a week out in winter just making whiskey at this um, old Kempton Redlands distillery. What it is, it's a hands-on brewing, distilling, and then also the fundamentals of the actual world of distilling, your excise, your licensing, um, sort of how you would actually start getting yourself out there and then how you should work quality control. So it's really, it's Bill Luck's syllabus and it's just been taught and handed down. Um, As small craft producers, we all look after our product, keep our quality high. So when people are drinking Australian spirits, they always associate themselves with a good quality product, whether it's whiskey, gin, vodka, anything, as long as it's as long as the producer is making a good quality product, we're all happy. Yep. And so after that, it was, we got our licenses, we got our still. And then after that, it was just building that gin that was for us or, um, and just basically running for it and just seeing if your theories work or if they don't work. And if they don't work, it's okay because (laughs) you're not out there yet. So you can just take your time and play with it, which is something that we did because for us that was just important was to because everything was at such a high standard you know you don't want to be the new kid on the block with a rubbish product (laughs) that's like the most embarrassing thing ever but you did eventually bite the bullet and just put your product out there right yeah so affinity uh was our first gin to market so that one took us about Uh, six months to kind of give it a go it was very different from the start to what it is now so um, that's basically from playing the levels of juniper versus what key botanicals are even in there um, to start with and also when we were creating affinity for the first time we started growing some of the botanicals at the distillery ourselves so um, lemon myrtle and stuff like that because we live on like a or our distillery rather is on a big block of bushland so we have the luxury of being able to grow our own botanicals when we can depending on the climate and everything like that so we just gave all of that a go and so that was one of the things as well that's special to us because we grow our own botanicals when we can um, and use them in our gin as well so it just helps bond it as part of its origins and we've done things like got botanicals from every which place in the world and put them up against each other and we 
found the ones that were grown in Australia's backyard were something that were of standard and quality and just help it round out its origins a bit better. Okay, so Ali, you're the head distiller and Nick, you're like the operations manager. What's it like working together? Working with my wife every day is absolutely amazing. We got married while designing and releasing Affinity, which was quite stressful. But to be honest, I wouldn't want to do all of this with anyone else. We look after each other. We're just generally there for each other. We work really well as a team. And yeah, we get to actually see each other as opposed to when we're working out other jobs. Josh, you took over the Timboon Distillery in Victoria with your wife, Caitlin. But I hear she's not the only family member you've roped in to help. <laughs> yes, it's a it's a family affair. Um, Sarah, my sister, is uh, back in the business full time. She distills. Um, she does a lot of behind the scenes um, organising and um, finance. My mother-in-law, Fiona, she runs a kitchen for the winter. Um, and yeah, it's a family affair. Mum and Dad do the bottling, so they they do all the bottling and labelling and handwrite on each bottle that comes through. So um, yeah, everyone's involved. Your mother-in-law works in the kitchen, so it's not just a distillery. You've got a Tim Boone then. We have a little bit of a unique business in in the sense that. Um, We have a restaurant there that runs seven days a week. Um, We have a beef farm that we run also. The restaurant provides cash flow for us to um, continue to build our inventory of stock. It'd be a very hard slog without without our salad door and restaurant um, providing cash flow to reinvest into our whiskey business. And that's one of the reasons that Tim Boone can focus on just doing whiskey. Um, I want to be known as a whiskey distillery, not as a half gin distillery, half whiskey distillery. I try and oversee the the operation as such and do um, all the spirit runs for our for our whiskey. Um, and we have people that come in and do wash runs for us, like Sarah, my sister. Um, Caitlin comes out. She works full-time in Warrnambool, so she comes and helps on public holidays and weekends and that sort of thing to, to lend a hand. Um, but every day is different, and that's what I love about it. I'm not I'm not railroaded into just making whiskey every day. I'm not doing the same thing all the time. It's um, Yeah, there's lots of uh, different avenues in our business that um, keep me occupied. Speaking of railroads, I hear the distillery's in a pretty unique structure. Where is it? Yeah, so we're in an old railway goods receival shed at the end of an old rail line and all the original timbers are in the in the roof. The old frames are still original, the tin's still original um, and the inside's been decked out to replicate how it was 100 years ago as an old train shed. So the big old sliding doors are still working um, and our still sits in the corner of it and um, works away six days a week now. Um, and we have a, we've just set up a big whiskey bar inside, so it's got big Chesterfield couches, um, a long communal table, open fire, um, and we have a 60-seat restaurant that sits out on a deck and yeah, you can enjoy a whiskey, some, some local produced food, and, um, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful old venue. That sounds amazing. You're from Timboon originally. Chris Middleton told me the other night about a bit of a cat-and-mouse chase that went on between the police and a rogue distiller out your way. But I'm guessing you already know about that. Tom Delaney um, was notorious for, for making Mountain Dew, they called it, back in the day. And he really uh, put our area on the map for illicit distillation. And um, he was very elusive in, in the way that he, he operated. He had um, multiple stills in multiple locations and he moved those around regularly to keep all the local coppers guessing. And um, it took quite a few years for him to, to be captured, but... 
they sent a fellow by the name of John Christie down from, from Melbourne and he went Sherlock Holmes style on, on Tom and went undercover and posed as a... Um, a travelling tinker, so he went around and fixed houses, um, gutters, ovens, all that sort of stuff, and built up the trust of the locals and um, kept overhearing conversations and um, got to know uh, certain locations of stills. And then he finally got to work on Tom Delaney's house and overheard his wife um, having a conversation, found out the still location, and um, raced back to Warrnambool on, on horse and brought all the coppers out in the morning and did a raid. and. Um, yeah, they found his still, and Tom actually got away again. Shots were fired, and, yeah, that, that put them on the map, I suppose, and they posted a £20,000 reward for Tom's capture, and um, back in those days, that was huge money, and he later handed himself in, and that put Tim Boone and Naranda on the map for, for whiskey production. So, And we actually named quite a few of our releases after Tom Delaney and after John Christie to try and tie that story in and um, help explain why Tim Boone is making whiskey today. So there was definitely a history of distilling in the area. But how did you guys learn to distill? Did the fact that it was already an established distillery when you guys bought it make it easier for you? Yeah, yeah, good question. It's um, it's one that I get asked just about every day at the distillery. And the previous owner, Tim Marwood, um, has been great. He's, he still comes to the Bond store once a month and tries the whiskey and we do different um, tastings and that. He And I, he's just a phone call away whenever I've got a question. Yeah, he, he learned off Bill Lark. He went down to Tasmania and learnt from Bill how to distill and um, he's yeah, graciously passed that on to me, um, all his knowledge. So in a roundabout way, it's come from Bill Lark. But, um, yeah, Tim's, you know, he's got a nice creamery just across the creek and is uh, more than willing to help out any time. And, um, yeah, he's been invaluable to, to where we are today. <laughs> Mate, somehow all roads seem to lead back to Bill Lark. So, Ali, how do people react when you tell them you're a distiller? Um, a lot of people just go, how old are you even? Like, are you, like, 23? It's like, no, <laughs> but thank you. Um, but, yeah, a lot of people just like, wow, good on you, getting out there and having a crack. Good on you, keep it up. <laughs> but, yeah, um, otherwise, when you talk to other people that are around my age as well, they're just like, you're in your own company. Wow. What's a distiller? <laughs> so it's still like creeping up there with being um, kind of more recognised, but still people have no idea. Like when you think about, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? Distiller is never really like one of those things that get bought up. Um, but now I think it's more of a legitimate job title now that people can think about or recognise. So I think it's, it's more accessible now to be able to do and follow through. What about you, Josh? Yeah, all my, all my friends and family said I was crazy. Um, they, they couldn't believe it. Um, but, yeah, it, was, uh, it took a little bit of convincing, especially Caitlin. Um, but, yeah, they could see that I was passionate enough to, to make that change and, and take a risk. And like, that's what life's about, taking a risk every now and then, and hopefully it pays off. So, yeah, we, we jumped in. Being so young, do you guys feel accepted by the other distillers? Yeah, so the Australian boutique industry is its a lot... It's closer than I actually thought that it was. Um, everyone always says that, yeah, like, you know, we're all a close, tight-knit group of people, but 
um, it's one of those things where you have kind of your buddies and your friends and they're probably one of the only people that really understand that crazy drive where everyone tells you it's a bad idea but just like I just have to do it um, and so they get that as well and they are on the same level and a lot of them have learnt from the same syllabus as you have so they again they have that philosophy ingrained in them and you get to talk about a lot of crazy stuff and like whenever you, after you do an event and stuff like that you'll get to just go hang out at a bar somewhere and just talk about it all all the funny bits all the bad bits everything like that and just have a bit of a laugh about it because being a distiller most of the time like especially in remote areas you get what I like to call like a shed mentality so it's just like it's you against the world sometimes so and and not that many people that you know know um, that side of your life or what's going through your head but when you get to catch up with the distillers of your generation it's kind of like a god I love this and I love you guys thank you (laughs) you kind of keep each other sane okay if you guys had to narrow down what you love most about becoming a distiller what would it be Oh, it's exciting. One of the most exciting things for a distiller is when you crack that sweet spot and you have your product and you're like, yes. Yeah, it's pretty satisfying feeling tasting something that's you've created from a, a raw ingredient and is now ready to be bottled and put on a shelf and sold. It's um, it's a pretty good feeling when you're doing tastings at a bar and someone picks it up the glass and tastes it and they see the smile on their face light up and go, oh, geez, that's good whiskey, and they buy a bottle. It really, um, yeah, it gives you a bit of a... Uh, an ego boost I suppose pumps up your tyres a bit and um, yeah that's at the end of the day that's why I love making whiskey to see people enjoying it and sharing it with friends and um, yeah it's it's good fun So what's the future looking like for Tim Boone Josh? Yeah we'll we'll keep growing um, we're trying to double production each year so this year we're hoping to produce around 6,000 litres of New Max Spirit next year we're hoping to go over 10,000 up to 12 um, and we'll keep growing um slowly but surely and putting more and more barrels down and um, yeah we're looking to do a a permanent bourbon expression release uh, next year and then the following year after that a sherry expression as as well as our port expression and Christie's cut so I'm trying to um, keep that consistency of spirit coming through and we don't release batches as such we try and have consistent product coming through that people know they can come and buy all the time Um, and um, yeah, not sell out of a product straight away and um, customers get disappointed. So we want consistent supply of these lines coming through. And for Karu, Nick? Uh, we're getting we're getting the word out ourselves with our spirit at the moment. We're pretty much on the road doing events as many as we possibly can. We don't have a cellar door yet as our approval hasn't quite come through. So we're sort of out on the road, constantly calling, meeting people. We're very lucky that the spirit industry is we also look after each other so we get a lot of recommendations from peers and we also recommend a lot of other peers and Ali will you guys be passing on your knowledge to the next generation of distillers yeah some people come up to us for advice um, whenever we can we always pass on our knowledge but we also encourage people to just kind of learn and experiment and have fun with it a bit because that's all part of the process is you learning and how you got to learn it's not so much of like a oh yeah I I learned this because Ali taught me or I learned this because Nick taught me Um, it's more of the journey getting there and everyone's is unique and different and it certainly was for us so we wouldn't want to take that away from everyone else sounds great well guys here's to a bright future for your craft distilleries 
and to all the future generations of Aussies making their own version of the Aussie spirit. The Aussie Spirit was produced by Podcast One Australia in collaboration with Nip of Courage. It was presented and sound designed by me, Matt Dwyer, produced by Alex Mitchell and written and developed by Jennifer Goggin. Sound production and music was by Matt Nikolic. For more info, go to nipofcourage.com.